Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 231 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Amy Bender. She's the author of the novels An Invisible Sign of My Own and The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, as well as the short story collections The Girl in the Flammable Skirt and Willful Creatures. Her short fiction appears in Granta, GQ, Harper's, Tin House, McSweeney's, and The Paris Review, and she also teaches creative writing at the University of Southern California. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new short story collection The Color Master. And now here's our interview with Amy Bender. All right, so we're here with Amy Bender. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I've heard you say that as a kid, you were really into fantasy books. So tell us about that. Yeah, I think those were by far my favorite books. So the whole gamut, the all the Madeline Lee Engel books. She kind of has a split canon of half magical sciency and half realistic. And I always vastly preferred the magical sciency ones and C.S. Lewis and... Um, the Oz books I actually loved pretty deeply. Um, the, I guess there was like, there's a wonderful book by Julie Andrews, famous singer Julie Andrews called The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles. That's a fantastic book. I love that book. Um, I also liked, like, when I moved into kind of adolescence, I was interested in horror too, but more so that than science fiction at that stage, I think, um, it wasn't an easy segue from the fantasy books as a kid into uh, science fiction, interestingly. Hmm. So, I mean, how did you get into the fantasy books? Where, did you have parents or teachers or friends who were reading them as well? Or Yeah, I have, I have two older sisters, and I kind of just would poach whatever they were reading. So uh, they read everything, and we, we were just a kind of reading family. So there was just tons of stuff lying around, and I think um, – they, yeah, I, I can't remember specifically, but I just think all we would go to the library and just get stacks of things. And that was always my leaning. I think there was something about the imaginative leap in those worlds that felt so exciting. And, um, you know, just just like the line, which in wardrobe feeling of that it's a wardrobe, something so based in a house, something so relatable that can be traveled through the kind of precursor to Harry Potter. Harry Potter mania, you know. <laughs> well, right. I heard you say, though, that at that time. I think most of the people were, most of the kids were reading like Judy Bloom and stuff like that. It was a little bit more unusual to be reading fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's true. If I think of my peers, everyone was reading Judy Bloom and it was all about Judy Bloom. And I read those too, but it was, it was pretty evident then. And I would say it's parallel now too, that, um, I read it and I was interested in it, but it didn't, um, grab me. Like it didn't feel like nourishment the way that the other books did, um, the, the fantasy books, they just tapped into something deeper and something um, sort of primal. And the other books felt like they addressed my daily life or concerns I might be having, but they didn't go to that deeper place. So, um, and I also think I was a slower bloomer than it just, just mentally in terms of adolescence and all of that. So those Judy Bloom books were a little, they were just like a little fast for me to even be thinking about that stuff. And my, I think a lot of my peers, you know, were, were the opposite and were wanting to kind of rush ahead into puberty and all that. And there was something about the fantasy worlds that was comforting that way too, because it was addressing things in a totally different way. Like the Philip Pullman uh, trilogy, the His Dark Materials, 
is it's such a there's so much going on about growing up in that but it happens in this really um metaphorical way so then you can be processing things that's how i think um i like to think and teach fairy tales too like they are tools of learning but you don't know what you're learning while you're learning it well right the philip pullman books are sort of a response to the narnia books and there's this really interesting line in narnia where one of the girls kind of grows up and discovers makeup and high heels and then she can't go to narnia anymore yeah yeah and it's i think there was a real fear of that i mean they talk about they talk about that in the little prince too right this idea of grown-ups not understanding and there's kind of the rare grown-up that can understand the imaginative world of the kid and that's and roald dahl talks about that too i mean it's kind of all over the place in kid books and it's a little terrifying because then you think what am i going to turn into you know i really i don't want to let go of this and i think um i felt in a way kind of commanded to let go of it and it wasn't just the Judy Bloom movement in that kind of elementary school time, but by high school, everything we read, um, or the majority of what we read was, was realism. And I didn't have any exposure to, to writing that wasn't realistic. And so I figured that it ended just like the high heels, right? The Narnia was closed off and it was closed off in literature too. So, I mean, was that just sort of, uh, a, a presence or were, were there any specific incidents where you were made to feel uh, childish or something for reading fantasy? Interesting question. Um, I don't think I advertised it. Maybe that's the, the signal about it. I would reread those books so often. I read those Oz books 20 times each. I mean, I just knew them by heart. I read A Wrinkle in Time so many times. And I think I did, I can't think of an incident in particular but i think i did feel like there was something about them in i felt like there was some sort of cultural acknowledgement that they were supposed to be put aside earlier and so if i was reading them in junior high or if i was looking at them in high school then that would be a kind of a source of shame if i had admitted it and i i um i loved the wizard of oz the film i loved that movie and it too like it engages in fantasy in such an interesting way and where it has this kind of realistic frame, but then the Oz part um, being literally in color. And so you feel so much, um, it's so much more beautiful than the rest of the movie. Though, um, when this makes me feel really old, but when we would watch Wizard of Oz, it was on once a year and it was, we had a black and white TV until I was probably 12. So it was always like a, not that interesting when she, when she would go to Oz, she'd open up the door of her little cabin and then it would look still black and white. Like in, later when I saw it on a big screen in Technicolor, um, it was it was so different. I understood so much better why it was a shock <laughs> to her standing there holding Toto. Um, but, but I would dress up like Dorothy. I had a whole, like I had a whole ritual that um, I think was loaded in so many ways, but I would, I just revered the movie and I revered that kind of move into fantasy and the, the, a wonderful sense of those characters. And so I would dress up like Dorothy. And there was a point where I felt like I really shouldn't be doing this anymore, but it would be on once a year. And I would want to have like a nightgown that was gingham. And I, so I would enact this sort of movie worship. Well, right. So, so you make it sound like you didn't quite fit in and you were sort of keeping this secret from other people a little bit. Did you have a, a facade of normality or could people kind of see through that? Yeah, I would say, um, it, it facade feels too extreme to me because I did have 
a pretty comfortable social life and I didn't feel excluded and I didn't feel, um, I had friends and, and, and I think I, I knew how to engage with people. It just felt like this part was maybe more private. So, so I think why facade doesn't quite feel right is I felt like I was engaging with the friends honestly, you know, like it was really also me. It's just that this other part, um, was kind of roiling around underneath. And that really is totally the source of where my writing comes from. So it's just, and, um, people often when they meet me at readings will feel like a little surprised that I have a kind of normal, um, manner, whatever that means, right? I mean, it means nothing. Like, I don't even know what I mean when I say it, but the normalcy that I project is not, um, is not false. That's real too. It's just that it's in the writing that I can access the other stuff. And it was in the reading that I could access the other stuff. And I didn't know how to integrate that, um, except through words and stories. Right. So if you got to this point where you felt like you kind of had to put the fantasy type stuff away, how did you come then around to writing the sort of fiction that you do? Uh, it took a while because I really, um, I mean, I can probably track it to sort of junior high and high school and college um, feeling a real it was also kind of Raymond Carver time. And there was such celebration of a kind of um, parboiled American realism and uh, value of that. And I, I really love Raymond Carver. And I actually think upon looking at him through through a different lens, I can see how how odd his stories are and how he kind of seeks out these these strange moments. Um, but, but so it took a long time because it was, I was, um, just feeling like the way to be taken seriously as a writer and to be considered literary was to try to write something more realistic. So it took until I was in grad school, um, and I wrote short pieces that were shorter than the other people in workshop. And we said we had maybe like 30 pages as our limit. And so I would turn in two and <laughs> I would, I would turn in one that was kind of my attempt to be more the realistic writer. And then I kind of had pages to fill. Like, let's say the realistic writer one was 12 pages that felt like I wasn't doing my job. So I would turn in a six page story that was like, um, a person, uh, going through reverse evolution or something that, that, um, ended up being more of what my writing feels like now. And, um, I would say it was one of the, the shocks of my, like one of those, you can sort of track certain moments in your life where you realize things that are so obvious, but you didn't really know it. So that people were like, oh, this second story is much better. And, um, I just didn't expect that at all. And it was so liberating to hear that. And I kind of ran with it after that. So why do you think that was that people preferred? Is it just because you were being more true to yourself or? Oh, yeah. I think it was totally better. I mean, I think it was without question. A more interesting. The language was more vibrant. I felt more in it. It was more emotionally alive. It was just a better story. Yeah. I mean, and your work, ha a lot of it has this very sort of fairy tale um, quality to it. Were you always, like, were you conscious of that? When did, how did the fairy tale stuff come into it? Yeah. And I, I mean, fairy tales, I connect to fantasy. They're kind of all on a spectrum in my mind. And I also read fairy tales constantly and from different countries and just and those were books that we did have kind of around my house and um I loved them and uh I guess I would I would say that um 
also when I went to grad school, the there was an interim director named Judith Grossman and she was there. She picked the class that I was in and she was that was the only year that she picked the class because um, Thomas Keneally was leaving and Jeffrey Wolf was coming in. So it was this kind of shift in lineage and she was just there for that. She was director for that year. So she picked a very eclectic class and she loved fairy tales. And so she um, put them on a reading list. Like she sent a summer reading list and I felt so inadequate in my gaps in terms of reading. And I was looking at all these books that I had to catch up on and feeling totally overwhelmed. And then in the middle, she had Andrew Lang's Lilac Fairy Book. And he used to compile these fairy tales from around the world and put them in fairy tale books titled by color, the Lilac Fairy Book, the Ochre Fairy Book, the Crimson Fairy Book. And and those were one of those books that I would read religiously. And um, that was a really, it, it's a, it was such a um, validating moment to see that she considered that literature in the same way that she thought about Dostoevsky or um, Jane Austen or all of these different writers that she had on the list. So um, I think that also felt kind of liberated at that grad school time was the idea that fairy tales uh, had value for adult readers and that could be used as a tool in storytelling and that um, all of them. Yeah, I, because to, to me, one of the distinctive characteristics of your writing is that very often the characters, the viewpoint characters don't have names. Yeah. Um, which I think of as being a sort of very fairy tale sort of thing. Is that where that came out of? Yeah, exactly. And, and um, <laughs> there was, I remember really clearly in just thinking of like all the workshops I've been in in my life. There was a workshop I was in in San Francisco at San Francisco State and they let, they let, uh, non-enrolled students for some reason go in the class. And it was taught by this wonderful writer, Jane Vandenberg. And we were, it was like 30 people in the workshop. It was huge. And, um, I turned in a story that had a kind of fairy tale tone, but I hadn't really absorbed that idea about names yet. So everyone had names and all the stores had names. Um, the bookstore wasn't a bookstore. It was, I think, a B. Dalton, which <laughs> is also like so. It's like well, that's, that's something from, it seems like something from a mythical past, no? <laughs> exactly. Long enough time, time goes by and even B. Dalton <laughs> feels somehow um, enshrined with that glow. So, so this woman, Jillian, I totally remember her. I have no idea what her last name was, but she said, you know, why don't you, you're, the tone of your stories doesn't feel like these names fit. And why don't you just say bookstore and why don't you just try boy and girl or man and woman or whatever? Like, I don't remember how much she spelled it out, but um, that was another kind of light bulb moment because I didn't like how the names looked like they feel kind of intrusive sometimes on the page to see uh, a name with a capital letter when you're trying to make something in more of that fairy tale tone. And for me, it, it felt like I could get to something truer in the story if I did away with names in some of the stories. Yeah. Well, and so this new book, The Color Master, there are three stories that deal very directly with fairy tales. There's the Color Master story itself, the Devourings, and the Red Ribbon. Yeah. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how fairy tales inform those stories? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I would say this book is the first book where I've actually used, yeah, and you're right, all three of those. I don't even think of the Red Ribbon as in that packet, but it is that the that I was using existing tales and trying to do a retelling um, that in my other books, it's always been a feeling of uh, an influence of fairy tales, but, but not a direct nod. And, and the red ribbon, it's that kind of folklore tale of the woman with the red ribbon around her neck, who's um, wears it and then 
when her husband takes it off one day, her head falls off. It's kind of like a classic camp horror story. Um, and I, I think I've always been uh, enamored of that story and it crept in. The other two were much more deliberate in terms of using the stories. That one crept in in a much later draft of that story. The idea of um, what, it, you know, what might that, what is that story about? Why is that story <laughs> so horrific? What is going on there and trying to unpack it? And, but the other two come from this fairy tale class that I teach. And um, I teach it almost once a year to freshmen and sophomores. And um, I have to reread the fairy tales for the class every time because, you know, they just read them and it's fresh to them. So I have to refresh myself. So I've read Donkey Skin, the Perot story about these three amazing dresses, the dress, the color of the sun and the dress, the color of the moon and dress, the color of the sky. I've read it so many times. And then this other one, kind of a Molly Whoopi story, which is about sort of like a Jack and the Beanstalk story about um, these kids coming and essentially playing a trick on a giant so that they escape. And the giant in those stories ends up um, killing his children. And in mine, he ate the children because um, it actually seemed, you know, there's always the Jack and the Beanstalk concern of fee fi fo fum the smell of the blood of an Englishman, I'm going to eat Jack. And it seemed like if the ogre, the giant thought he was going to, um, it was going to go into the room and eat, he was going to eat something. Like he wasn't just going to kill. Like I almost felt like the fairy tale had dodged that grotesquerie. So anyway, so I read those stories a lot and, um, and I just, I think I just felt so steeped in, in their images that I wanted to take them on. And, and for the color master, I wanted to think about what kind of tailors would make dresses the color of sky, moon, and sun? What What is the color of the moon? What is the color of the sun? How do you make that in such a way as to change someone's life as they do in the Perot story and as they did in mine too? And with the devourings, uh, how does a marriage survive if your husband eats your children? <laughs> <laughs> and to try to take that, uh, to take that at, um, through the lens of realism to take this absurdity, but to try to tell that story realistically. And I had so much fun writing both of those in particular. I totally endorse that change of the ogre eating the children. I think that they've yeah. storytellers for centuries have been totally missing the boat on that. Cause that's obviously the way the story should go. Yeah. I, yeah. It's really interesting when you see what little changes are in there. Like apparently uh, we read some Bruno Bettelheim in that class too, and he talks about psychoanalytic views of fairy tales. And there was one point where he talks about Red Riding Hood and um, sewing that the wolf is drowned because they didn't want to have it be that when they pull Red Riding Hood and the grandma out of the wolf, that then the wolf just dies because that would too much resemble um, childbirth. Like, and there were so many women centuries ago who would die in childbirth. So the story, I think, through the re retellings and retellings, probably flopped when the wolf bled to death on the floor. You know, probably the, the kids didn't like that. So they, the retelling that we get more commonly now is the huntsman or someone puts rocks in the wolf's stomach and sews him back up and he, the wolf drowns. Or in some of them, the wolf just is banished or the wolf slinks away, whatever. But um, I thought that was so interesting, too, that what are the ways the stories evolve to address our anxiety. So maybe it was just too grotesque to have the ogre eat the kids. But I'm with you. He's got, he's got it. That's what he would do. <laughs> well, and speaking of this, of this donkey skin story, I have a friend in New York who is a folklore 
scholar. And one time she showed me this book she had where it was this compendium of these fairy tales, basically. And all the versions of Donkey Skin were all numbered. It was like 102B and all these things like that. There were hundreds, hundreds of variations on this one story. Wow. I would love to see that. And they were all stories or were they um, paintings as well? And... This was, from what I remember, it was sort of a synopsis, like a little, you know, just a little description of how this version differed from all the other versions. And it was just page after page after page of that, just for, you know, just for donkey skin. I mean, there were so many variations. Wow. Yeah. Um, they have these amazing kind of documents. It's like Vladimir Prop, and there's the Arna Thompson um index have you do you know about this where they they took all the fairy tales and they made kind of a mathematical breakdown it's it's not quite mathematical but it's it's like a breakdown of one a one b one c like giant or planting of beanstalk and then the story goes sort of like a flow chart like yeah, a. yeah yeah and it's they just made it a kind of um foundation of research to think how the stories diverged which sounds a little bit like that folklorist's book um and it is amazing. And the stories, they show up in different countries in similar forms in places where there weren't obvious trade routes. So it's unclear if the story traveled or if the story just emerged um, similarly, if these stories kind of had to happen. And so every culture invented some version of it or if the story traveled through the Silk Road or something and found its way from China to Mongolia to Russia, you know, like who knows? But I think that's so interesting because they're they're entirely authorless. Right. And it's it is sort of a weird evolutionary process. And like you say, you could have these convergent evolution uh, things going on where just, you know, whatever people liked telling were the ones that survived and got and had children, had offspring that could then be selected from and so on. Yeah, exactly. Right. The story offspring. I think that's right. And now Disney's this huge contributor. And how will Disney, I mean, Disney's so dominant, but Disney's still just another voice along the pathway of it. Um, when I teach, a lot of the students have only seen Disney. They sign up for the class because I think, I don't know, they think we're going to watch a lot of Disney, but <laughs> <laughs> they, they willingly go along with, with some Angela Carter and stuff. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, talk a little bit more about the, that class. I mean, what would you say, what, like, what sort of relationship do you think the students today have with these these old fairy tales? Like, what role do they play in their lives or how do they feel about them? Or? I mean, they're kind of amazing students because they're, I mean, most of them are not familiar with them. I'd say there's usually one or two who read fairy tales as a kid. And most of them grew up on Disney. And in fact, now they're like... What they're like right around where the Little Mermaid kind of hit them at birth or something. Like, yeah. I forget exactly, you know, like they were just like raised in Ariel or whatever. So, um, but they're really thoughtful about reading them. They, they like them and they respond to the swiftness of them. And we read, Calvino has this great essay about economy of language and we talk about how fast the stories move. And then they, they really like all the retellings and there's so many weird retellings. So, um, I think they're surprisingly open and this class is not English majors. So it's like business and calm and science and pre-med and, um, you know, some arts kids, but not majority. And so that's also kind of interesting. Right. Now, it seems to me that the, the pre-Disney fairy tales are mean spirited in a way that is sort of almost unimaginable for people today. I don't know if you agree with that. 
I half agree with it. I don't know if I'd say mean-spirited. I would maybe say dark and violent. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes there it comes from mean-spiritedness. And sometimes it's like just these weird actions happened, happened and the motivations are not totally clear. Um, but yeah, Disney wouldn't be up for that. And sometimes um, the story loses some bite. Bettelheim says the story has to have the happy ending in order to work on a child. Like it has to, you have to emerge from the woods, but you have to go into the woods. That's where Into the Woods comes from, the musical and the movie and all that, that you have to go into the darkness to get out of the darkness. And, and that for a child and, and for adults too, that to have a safety rail as you go somewhere frightening, the safety rail being the happy ending means you'll go there because you, you'll know you'll be out of there. But I mean, it depends on your point of view, too, because most of them don't have happy endings if you're the witch or the giant or whatever. Totally, totally. And I think for whatever reason, we're in a cultural time where like the the former villain is now sympathetic, like wicked. And I haven't seen Maleficent, but I've heard um, that's the obviously the the thrust of that. And so, yeah, but so I think there is more interest in kind of a Maybe that is a hopeful way in this in this kind of scary era we're in, but maybe there's something hopeful about the fact that people are interested in the full story, at least in these narratives. No, I, th- I think so. Yeah, to to just not accept the idea, to just just to just not accept at face value that so and so is the monster, but to always be thinking, yeah. you know, sympathetically about every character in the story. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Okay, so I want to ask you too about some of these other stories. So, um, Tiger Mending, you say it was inspired by this painting. So tell us about that. Yeah, so there's an artist named Amy Cutler, and she's a painter. And she does a lot on gouache. I think that's how you say it, gouache. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was this pairing, Black Book, the magazine, did a pairing of writers and artists. And I think they gave me three people to pick from. And and I picked Amy and I think a few years even before that, she and I had been in touch because she's also kind of a, a lover of fairy tales. And her work is so interesting. And it's a lot about women in industry where she has women doing um, these odd jobs like um, they'll have chairs on their heads and they're sort of bucking like antlers or they're sewing something, not just tigers, lots of things. Or they're, they're um, flying kites with I think keys on them. They're just, they're really, they're really um, compelling images and, and easily findable online. But I, so I totally wanted to work with her and they said, okay, I had to pick a painting of hers and write a story off it. And so then the next thing was picking because there's, these are so many images. There's pigs under the bed of women. I think it's almost entirely women in her pictures, which is really interesting, but they also look kind of women of 150 years ago. And they're, um, they have this sort of, strange modesty to them they're 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 fascinating and so tiger mending was the one i picked and then um the picture is an image of three i believe it's three women um and they have tigers in their laps and they're sewing on stripes and it's just beautiful and apparently several people have gotten it as a tattoo um which i think is a really neat tattoo and i think for me so much of the work was in that image that she had done. And then it was trying to wrap a story around it and, and think what, you know, how did this moment happen and, and what might it mean? 
I'm sorry, who who gave you this assignment? This magazine called Black Book. I think it's still around. It's like a glossy, glossy magazine. There's another thing now called Seven Times Seven, which is pairing writers and artists. And that one is more collaborative. Um, I just did that, which was really fun, where uh, the guy sent me, Lawrence Lee sent me a drawing and I wrote a page and then he wrote a, did a drawing based on my writing and we did it seven times each. And um, so this one, the Black Book one, was kind of like that, but it was um, just the one pink. That's interesting. So have you um, gotten feedback from Amy Cutler at all on your story? Yes. No, we had a great conversation about it. And um, and so she had her work collected um, in a hardback book for um, a German publisher, an art publisher. And they asked me to write the introduction or a foreword. Um, commentary and I think I ended up they wanted to use the story so the story's in there and then maybe there's a little commentary from me as well but mostly it's the story that uh is my commentary (laughs) and so there's been a nice back and forth several ways and and these tattoos and people who know her work or who know this uh, my work and kind of finding this convergent space it's pretty cool is that common for you to have some specific prompts like that to write a story off of it's it's not uncommon. I, I really believe in them. And I could probably, there's a story in um, The Color Master called The Fake Nazi. And and I was reading at a reading and someone asked me where the story came from. And I had to like search back several <laughs> um, memories to realize it came from an exercise I've sometimes given myself from um, based on fonts where I'll, I'll be so bored and stuck, but I give myself a kind of set writing block amount of time and I'll just feel like I have to sit there for a little longer. And so I'll just riff off fonts, like putting little paragraphs in different fonts and whatever comes up in that one was based on the font Huffler, uh, H-O-E-F-L-E-R. And it became a guy, Hans Huffler, who then became this whole story that he thought he was a Nazi, but he really had never been a Nazi. So, so that, that was a prompt that I gave myself but it was like one of many, right? So it wasn't like um, all of those font stories work. Most of them are are terrible, but there was one that stood out that then one day I figured I'd work on a little bit more. So I could probably track a third of the stories in the book to something like that. So how many font stories did you, like, could you quantify how many font stories, how many un, unrealized <laughs> font stories you had? 40, maybe. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> There's a magazine, Zizaba, it's a West Coast journal and it's based in San Francisco and it published like 12 of them or something like, um, and that was fun to try to put them in something that they're just paragraphs. So they're little, but just something that would be, um, in some way readable because, because yeah, most of them are just, um, like a little spew and then moving on to the next. But, but I really, I really believe in the idea that, um, you don't, you don't sit down with your material. You don't sit down knowing what you're going to write. You don't sit down with this idea. Or if you do, that's usually the thing that's getting in your way. And that whatever you can do to jog yourself out of yourself into something new is a quicker route to uh, better work. I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, I, I saw that in addition to the fairy tale class, you teach a class on surreal writing, some, something along those lines. I and... have, yeah. I haven't in a while, but I used to a lot. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I was just wondering, um, as you say, when the process of writing these sort of surreal stories that you write seem seems much more um, amorphous and idiosyncratic than writing typical plotted kind of fiction. Is it hard to teach 
that? Or is it hard to say what's working or what's not in a student story when it's in this realm of surrealism? I don't think so. I mean, I do think it's, you know, a teacher teaches what she knows. And so I'm going to, I definitely have that slant where I'm always trying to kind of loosen the students up and get them to follow a story's own movement. Because I think there is a lot of impulse to plot something in advance or to kind of um, at some point frame it in a certain way. But then more often than not, it'll feel contrived. I think there are writers that can do that really well. But um, I would say most uh, can't. And like Flannery O'Connor talks about it really well, where she talks about how a story can um, just kind of open itself up to you on the page if you let it. And But with students, yeah, I think it, with a story that's sort of surreal um, or outside of realism in some way, I think maybe it's a more intuitive reading experience as opposed to thinking standard templates of plot and character. But even realism is like that too, like going back to Raymond Carver. It's not like his stories followed any standard movement. I think all the classics have surprised me in that they're all kind of odd and and are so rarely proportional in the way they set themselves out or they're they're just they're just like Moby Dick is just such a big sprawling obsessive thing and it's an incredible book and so how does a writer get to writing the thing that it just comes from a deeper place, whatever that is. And that can be, you know, gritty barebone realism, or it can be as strange as a dream. But the idea is to just get to that place to get to the deeper material. Cause otherwise, you know, you can just sort of get garden variety, um, magical stories and you can get garden variety, realistic stories. And you don't feel that the writer's presence is in that story. But so you don't have a problem with students being defensive and saying, if you if you say like well this you know this isn't working they're like well it's supposed to be like that because it's weird you know it's weird it's supposed to be weird things like that. Well, no, I think that is a problem because that's the idea is that it, the weirdness has to move beyond just weirdness. So it's it has to be a felt weirdness. It has to resonate in some way, and and that's where workshop is a strange beast because we're talking about resonance, and that's it's not like any checklist, you know. So we're sitting around a table. The person has not completed this work. It's in progress we're kind of getting in the muck with them, trying to talk about our experience. And I really encourage the class to speak about it ineffectually, like to really s struggle with what you're trying to say and to try to articulate what you feel is coming at you from the story. And that's where, yeah, if something's weird and we're engaged with it, fabulous. But if something's weird and it feels kind of dumb, that comes across too, all the time. Or if it just feels cute or clever or, um, like it's avoiding something that's, that's loud and clear on the page. And so, yeah, then if a person says, well, I was just trying to be weird there, then it would go back to the same idea of, um, you know, it's not showing up on the page, whatever they're thinking is showing up on the page might not be. Hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of realism, I want to ask you about this quote, because this uh, color master has a blurb from the Los Angeles times where it starts out at a time when realism reigns supreme over the literary landscape. I was just curious what you thought of it. Do you, th do you think that's an accurate statement about the current state of literature? I mean, I love that quote, of course, because it's, it's, um, it's really nice. But, but yeah, I would say realism. I mean, it's probably still dominant. Yeah. But I would say much less so than it was in the eighties, um, and the nineties. So I, if I look now, I feel like there's a huge range of, um, 
elements of strangeness or thinking of Colson Whitehead and the Underground Railroad as like a real railroad. Like there he's dealing with realism, but he has this strangeness built in that's so much about um, his voice and his obsessions as a writer. Um, so I just, yeah, I feel like there is, there's a lot of variety now. Um, but if I were, to, yeah, if I were to say what, if we were to look at most books, I mean, you think about memoir, like if there's, there's a huge surge in nonfiction right now. And I think it's amazing what people are doing, but, but that generally is grounded in reality for the most part. Mm -hmm. Well, because I mean, when I read uh, Willful Creatures back in 2007, I, I really liked it. And I went on Amazon.com and it says, you know, if you like this, you might like this as well. <laughs> and I read a whole bunch of things I found through that, like Judy Budnitz and Julia Slavin. Oh, nice. oh that's how, oh, I yeah. how I discovered Karen Russell and Stacey Richter. And then about a year later, around that time, I guess, um, you guys were all in the Tin House um, Fantastic Women special mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. Um, and it felt like there was real a real moment going on. Did you feel like you were part of some movement or moment at that yeah, time? Yeah, I, I did. And I, it's great to hear. I mean, it's great to hear um, all all the parts of that, finding the book, finding the other books, um, and all those writers who, who I love. And yeah, no, I did. I felt like there was kind of a wave that I got to ride on um, that's still happening. That That is, and it's interesting, they're primarily women writers, but not all. And there is like a strong presence of the fairy tale behind them or Kelly Link in there, um, Kevin Brockmeyer in there. Um, now Helen Oyayemi, amazing. Um, I'm reading a book right now. Um, the man who fell to earth. Arima is her last name. Anyway, she's, it's, it's really, it's a great collection that's coming out in summer. So it's just, I still see it happening and I think it does supply a needed. Um, place for writers because I think there was kind of an absence of it and then whatever cracked open made space for us. It was nice. <laughs> well, well, you Sarah, Sarah Bynum, she's one too. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah, well, you, and you mentioned how many of these authors are women. I was just wondering yeah. if you have any thoughts about why that is. I, I mean, I don't really know. I think I can I can make up reasons which are just sort of fun to think of but I, I guess the, the reason that I like is... Um, you know, the, the, in, in the olden days when they would sit around and spin their wheels and tell the stories, those were mostly women and they called them old wives tales. And they had a kind of lineage of women sitting together. This goes to Amy Cutler doing tasks, a kind of industry with their hands and telling stories to each other and to children and, um, raising children and the presence of these tales. So I, I guess I do see an echo from that. Do you, do you see, I wonder if, I mean, to an extent that because writing had been dominated by men for so long that a lot of this was unexplored territory and so it feels very fresh and new in a way that, you know, telling weird stories about men's, you know, magical stories about men's lives wouldn't feel that yeah. same freshness. Yeah, I think that might be right. And it, I mean, it makes me think of how um, liberated I felt when I saw that uh, Andrew Lang's Lilac Fairy book and Judith Grossman's List. And that was her. And she happened to love fairy tales and she had this moment and she was the female director and she was flanked by wonderful writers, but that who probably wouldn't have listed it. And that was her sort of idiosyncratic edition. And that spoke to me in some deep way about, um, the validity of these fairy tales. And I think, um, and I have heard like some of the nicest comments that I hear from readers is, Oh, I didn't know this, this was allowed. 
Um, so that there's something about permission that comes from maybe that's the freshness um, that you're talking about or Linda Berry, a cartoonist and novelist I love and her, she's a huge fan of the Grimm brothers tales and you can feel it in her work. And there is this um, way that the storytelling seems to work with the fairy tales that does, it, it feels like um, there's some permission given in that there's some um, validation. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the the idiosyncratic nature of this kind of writing. And I also wanted to ask you about this blurb um, from NPR. They call you one of the reigning masters of the eccentric short story. And I thought eccentric was kind of an interesting word choice there. Do you think, do you think if your writing is eccentric? Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what does it mean, right? What does eccentric really mean in terms of writing? I guess I'm mostly, I just was so delighted by the blurb. You know, it was so nice to be acknowledged. It's just nice way. to be the reigning master of something. It doesn't matter so much what exactly. it is. I'm happy to like walk with a limp and have funny hair <laughs> sticking up. Or like if my stories look like that, I'm, I'm so thrilled. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that was, um, Alan Chu's and, and I think he was reading a lot of books. And so I think there is something for book, book critics. It's nice to hear. If the majority of the stuff that's coming across their desk does seem to fall into the category of what what we call realism, then then yeah, I guess eccentric kind of works. I mean, what do you make of it as a word choice? Well, I mean, because I you know I come out of fantasy and science fiction, and so one thing that always strikes me is the lengths that people will go to avoid calling things fantasy or science fiction. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't help but seeing it a little bit in that light. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then Kelly Link feels like such a crucial champion where she's really, I don't know, she's just kind of of that world enough that um, I feel like there isn't a kind of shirking away from those terms. But you're right. Fantasy and science fiction get an unfair rap. <laughs> I mean, do you, I'm just curious, do you, have you, do you read authors from the fantasy and science fiction section of the store? Or do you interact with them at all? Um. I don't interact with them that much I'm thinking, um, but it's not out of any, it's just sort of like the circles of things that invite me. Like I, um, I think I just haven't had much contact really, but, but I'll read some, like, I think, um, Jeff Vandermeer, who did an anthology of sort of fantastical fiction and, and, um, and so I, he and I had a nice exchange about that and I'm not averse to it. I mean, I, I think interestingly, the place I see it most um, clearly sort of in my daily life is that is in teaching where there are teachers who will tell their, they'll tell their class, you can't write that. You can't write fantasy and science fiction, which I've always found uh, really odd. Really. Um, it, it, it's not addressing what makes it, story work it's not genre you know like genre in my mind is not the deciding factor so so in some ways i think i might see it more in student work than seeking it out on my own you know I, i've met those teachers so yeah i can testify yeah. to that yeah and but so then you just you didn't write that way like you just felt like that was not available as an option is that how it worked yeah i mean I, you know if the professor says or the teacher says you you have to write realism then you know you write realism but right um, right right <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I think it would, it's the thing that bothers me about it is it's that goes back to the thing you were saying about the person who does weird for weird sake. Like, yeah, it's a problem if you write a fantasy piece that just feels like rehash of some other fantasy piece. But, um, that's true for realism too. In fact, it's more cynical when it's realism. Like, I don't, I don't, it tend to feel like people who love fantasy and science fiction tend to be kind of earnest in their love. And people who, like, if they're writing a literary, quote unquote, literary short story, but it feels still not quite of them, there's something bleaker to me about that than someone who's writing a fantasy story that's not of them. And both, both writers still need to kind of tap into what might be, um, more alive and more their own, which I think it takes away. It goes back to those barriers and using prompts and try to shake up the brain a little bit so that it doesn't go to its usual tracks. Right. Well, I mean, because there was a weird whiplash experience for me growing up because I was always writing. Um, and when I was a kid, people said, you can't write fantasy and science fiction because that's too weird. And then, you know, you get to sort of high school, college, and then they start saying, you can't write fantasy and science fiction because that's too conventional. And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> well, which is it? Make up your mind, you know? Yeah. And it does also, in my mind, it also makes it seem um, powerful. Like you start to feel like when, when anyone's putting the kibosh on something that you feel like there's no, like, why not? What What's going to be so like, yes, if you write something conventional, someone, a teacher can really try to push you to maybe move away from the the plot tropes that you might be employing or character movements or whatever, you know, like how can you make the language more interesting? How can you make the, it more fresh? That's all totally worth going into, but that's about, that's just a totally different conversation than saying no fantasy or whatever. And I, I actually have several students right now who are writing um, pieces that are in some way skewed into fantasy or into science fiction or into, um, uh, tale kind of tale telling. And there's some of the strongest writers in the class. I mean, it's, it shows in the language, like it would be such an, a problematic restriction, I think for them. Yeah. Well, it does seem to me there's a lot of crossover between fantasy and science fiction fans and the kind of writing you do. I mean, I first, uh, discovered you because Ben Rosenbaum interviewed you for Strange Horizons. Um, oh, that's great. I love that. I love that interview. He's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, and so I read Girl in the Flammable Skirt, and that's kind of my, was my introduction to your work. Um, and I, I did notice looking, I mean, you've had, um, one of your stories was reprinted in Lightspeed Magazine, which is, you know, we're sort of affiliated with them. Yeah. 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 And you were nominated for a Tip Tree Award and a Shirley Jackson Award. So there is kind of this sort yeah. of, you know, common ground there. Yeah. And actually, I was so thrilled about those nominations because of that. And in some ways, like, like marketing is interesting because I have this novel, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, and it has kind of this light blue color and it's gotten like a really good touring of, of, of book groups who tend to do more realism. And they bought, there's like a couple magical turns in the book. And one of them is, is, was a risk. And a lot of the people who are used to more um, traditional narratives won't go there. And I actually have longed for like the sci-fi <laughs> readership to find the book, but I feel like if they looked at it, they would never think that that book would be for them. And I've wondered like, how do I tap into that? Because I, it, and more just for the feeling of like, I think they would get it. Like, I think it would be a leap that a lot of sci-fi readers would be willing to take that, um, that other readers won't won't go to they'll just be like well i was with her for this part but then i couldn't go there and i feel like um i believe in the i believe in the turn in the story but but yeah it alienated <laughs> some readers 
Some yeah. some really go for it and some don't. Yeah. Yeah, well I mean that's what I like about fantasy and science fiction readers. They tend to be very open-minded about content like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some way that like um the idea of talking about something in metaphor and and not like a clear metaphor but just something where the language is taking you somewhere um and speaking of something where the meaning isn't immediately evident like that's just that's my bread and butter i just love that yeah i also really want to ask you about your story word keepers and yeah. you said that it's uh it's sort of inspired by this book called the shallows by nicholas carr oh yeah yeah um that's a great book just about how our reading attention is changing and um, because we're always scanning and skimming and it's harder to actually nestle down with a book and stay focused on it for a long time. And so he's just talking about it and then he's talking about ways we can sort of combat it. It's, it's just a really, I thought it was a great read. Um, yeah. And word keepers is about um, words and what words we use and, and is it harder to find words now? And that I do see with my students and myself kind of hunting for words and forgetting words and forgetting what we're saying and sort of, split attention. I see it all the time. And I mean, have, I don't, have you been teaching long enough that you see the effect that the social media and all the kind of stuff has on student writing or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have at this point, I'm like 15 years teaching at college and I was teaching before then as a grad student. And yeah, I mean, I, the student work, interestingly, I would say maybe there's a little, it's more like what we're talking about earlier. Like there's more space for outside of realism. There's more kind of a natural movement towards that. There are more stories I can bring them um, that I can dip into Poe and Kafka, but I also can be bringing in Karen Russell and be bringing in Kelly Link and all that. And they're usually so into it. Um, but, but I, what I do see is a little different attention span or like they'll complain a little more if stories are slow, if like the published stories that I, give them our little slow they'll, they'll complain sort of wryly like we know that we're supposed to be reading this but it actually was a little hard so that's interesting that feels new i mean is there anything to be done i mean do you think do you think people should give up their iphones and facebooks or like what is the i mean they won't they won't give them up but i do think my guess and i've heard this talked about and i think he talks about this a little bit in the shallows of just like hotels where you have to check in your uh your phone that I think culturally, like we've just been given this giant um, toy box and it's endless. But then I think through the decades, we'll learn ways to um, put limits on it personally, you know, like that all these apps that can shut off things, I think are helpful for writers that you can shut off the internet, you could, you know, the freedom app and all that. But, um, but I think there are going to be more and more things like that. Like what's the way that you can actually take a break from social media. I mean, I just feel like people will need that. Are there's these camps? Have you heard of these camps where you go for a weekend and you have to give up your phone and then no. you, you make up a new name or something? <laughs> <laughs> You're just at camp all weekend without your phone. It's like corporations or something. I don't know. Just, but it looked really fun. <laughs> it seemed like a rare liberation. <laughs> I mean, because there's sort of this perennial hope, it seems, on the part of people who really admire short stories that shorter attention spans are going to lead to this surge of popularity of short <laughs> fiction, but it never seems to quite happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think in the same way, though, that I don't believe that short stories will die, I also don't believe they're going to, yeah, suddenly become the, the new wave of fashion. 
But I guess in France, they're giving them out in vending machines or something. But like, where do I know that piece of information? From social media. <laughs> so I'm full of little tidbits, as we all are. Um, and I do, I do feel in myself how you have to clear a space to be able to focus on something and concentrate. You really have to actively make a wall from some of that stuff. It's a powerful pull. Yeah. Well, sort yeah, sort of my take on it is that the heart, the, 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 the part of a, of reading a story that requires the most effort, but is also the most rewarding is reconfiguring your brain to understand who these characters are and what the world is and what the rules are and things like that. And yeah. reading short stories requires you to do that every 15 minutes or something. Whereas if you read some ser some long series, you just have to do that basically pretty much once at the beginning, and then you can just kind of coast from there on out. Huh. So that the pleasure um, with short stories is from that reconfiguring constantly. Like, that's part of the pleasure of it? I think so, yeah. I mean, for uh, yeah. just I can speak for myself, but I, I think that's true for me, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. But I think you also then lay out an interesting challenge to novelists to say, like, is there a way to continually reconfigure? I don't know. Like, that's sort of like Cloud Atlas is like that, um, where you have different chapters, and each chapter is exactly what you're saying, but they all build on a common theme. Yeah. No, but I mean, for, I think for me, yeah, but reading a novel like Cloud Atlas or reading a short story collection, it's kind of like one of those fraternity initiation things where they put you a bag over your head and drive you out into the middle <laughs> of nowhere and like take it off and you're like, where am I? How do I survive? What, you know, what's going on? Exactly. That's exactly right. Like, what are these words? What, where am I? Yeah. Yeah. And you feel kind of proud when you're fully hazed and then you made it through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so we have just a couple minutes left. I really want to ask you about your story, uh, End of the Line, is the story that's yeah. just always really stuck in my mind so much. Could you just say kind of where that story came from? Well, thanks. I'm glad. And it's, um, I don't have a, a kernel directly, but I think if we go like back to the reading as a kid and there were like, because it's there's a big man and a little man and there was there were all those stories about little people there were the borrowers there was Gulliver's travels there was um Stuart little all the little like matchbox things like there was something so fun about that little world and I was I'm the youngest of 3 and so I didn't have a little sibling to uh persecute and adore in that way that older siblings I think can do and so um, I think I was always obsessed because of that with the little people idea, like what would that happen? And then into adulthood, thinking of that idea of like, what would really happen if you could actually have a little person, if you could go buy a little person and then um, playing it out in terms of power dynamics. So I think it, it came from a sort of joyful, whimsical place, but then um, it, I wrote it in little bits because it was freaking me out. So I would write it and then I'd work on something else and then I'd write it. And then finally, like a couple of years later, the little bits coalesced into a story and I felt like I could show it to someone, but it, it made me uncomfortable. So I would just work on it for short periods at a time. Right. Cause it's a decidedly R rated kind of Stuart little story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty harsh. I mean, it's about torture really and power and, um, People in a very satisfying way have read all kinds of um, meaning into it. So, and I really like hearing that. So, um, but it was, I think it was interesting to me that I would dip in it and then dip out. And then when it ended up being a whole story that I could show to someone, it, it was about more complexity than I realized. Um, so it's another way of just like, it's meaningful for me that if there's any material that's beckoning, even if it feels repellent to really try to go there because you don't know what's on the other side of it. 
So do any of those reactions that you've gotten from people stick out in your mind? Someone thought about it in terms of slavery. Someone thought about it in terms of abusive relationships. Someone thought about it in terms of, um, well, just the confusion of whether or not, or just feeling compassion for the big man at the end and feeling so unsettled by that. Um, I can feel it when I read that story aloud. It's really fun to read aloud, but I can feel the moment where the audience feels uncomfortable and it's really interesting for me <laughs> to just be able to track that so closely that it's, it's funny up to a certain point And then they're like, Oh, this isn't funny. <laughs> and, and so I feel like I'm persecuting the audience a little bit, which is just really interesting from my perspective that I'm trying to go somewhere with them and to take them with me. And then, um, but again, like none of that was in my mind consciously when writing it, I would just, I'll have this kind of set block of time and I would just open up the file and then literally work on it for like three minutes and then be like, okay, I, you know, know something else. Cause it was just, it felt a little like, um, like a hot potato, I guess. You know, and I would really, really encourage people to go check out that story because as you say, it has an incredible amount of impact in just 10 pages or something. It's a really concentrated dose of, uh, of impact. Thank you. Um, all right, cool. And so we're all we're all out of time now. So, uh, Amy, do you want to just tell us uh, what you're working on now or anything else you want people to go check out? Um, I'm working on a novel. So I'm just kind of exploring it. So I have nothing I can tell concretely about that. But uh, but there was this 7 times 7 thing. That's a cool site to look at. It's 7x7, and that's a new piece that's findable online. So they would just search for 7 times 7 Amy Bender or something and it would come up? Yeah, I think that would work. All right, great. So everyone go check that out. <laughs> and uh, I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Amy Bender, and her book again is called To the Color Master. And so, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Amy Bender for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Garfage in the UK, who writes, Great, high-quality podcast. This is a really well-made podcast that is always a credit to the host, who always researches and prepares with an incredible level of professionalism. I now look forward to the episodes. Keep up the good work. So big thanks again to Garfage for that great review. Special thanks as well to Matt Hopper and Ollie Zem, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.